Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jennifer Yerimeva, and today I'm with Professor Elisa Bimporad to discuss her new book, Legacy of Blood, Jews, Pogroms, and Ritual Murder in the Land of the Soviets, which delves into two of the Tsarist administration's most tenacious anti-Semitic legacies, pogroms and the blood libels. Professor Bimporad has taken this legacy into the Soviet era with a keen examination of the Soviet myth that the Bolshevik regime had eradicated both pogroms and the blood libel. The result is a meticulously researched book that is is thought-provoking and in many ways timely, as Russia continues to grapple with prejudice of all kinds in the 21st century. The book has garnered professional accolades of all kinds, including winning the National Jewish Book Award for Modern Jewish Thought and Experience. And I'm so delighted that it has, provo- that it has brought Professor Elisa Bemporad to the podcast today. Elisa, welcome. Thank you, Jennifer. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, let's begin with a brief overview of your extremely distinguished academic career. And I wonder if you could take us through how you came to concentrate on Jewish studies. Um, so I, um, I was not born in the Soviet land. Um, I was actually born in the land of balsamic vinegar, <laughs> um, well, I grew up in the land of balsamic vinegar and Pavarotti. So I'm from Italy and I grew up in Modena. Um, and in Modena, in my parents' library, I came across uh, the work of uh, Tolstoy, actually the Cossacks, in the edition of Einaudi. And I began, as I was a teenager, I began um, to read about uh, Russia through Russian literature. And um, when I started university at, at the University of Bologna, I definitely I decided that I wanted to learn Russian and I wanted to focus on Russian history. And then I found this course on the history of the Jews of Russia, actually a comparative approach to the shtetl, the, the village where Jews, you know, the small town where Jews lived, and the mir, uh, where uh, Russian peasants lived, right? The, the, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the, the organization. So I decided to focus, you know, from there, I decided to focus on the history of the Jews of Russia, and um, which is not a specialty in Italy. So um, from Italy, I moved to New York for a second MA and then to Stanford, where I decided to focus on the history of uh, the Jews in the Soviet Union. So it all, always all begins with Tolstoy, doesn't it? <laughs> Definitely. Tolstoy or Dostoevsky. <laughs> but, it, but I think uh, Russian studies is, is very much the, the richer for uh, your sacrifice of leaving the land of balsamic vinegar for um, the land of uh, Russian studies. Now, before we begin, because um, uh, many of our listeners will know the answer to this question, but some will not. And I want to make sure we get this right, because um, your whole book is sort of premised on this. Could you outline for us what exactly the blood libel is, what its origins are, and how does this 
form part of the sort of very common beliefs of ordinary people up to the 20th century, uh, to the years right before World War I and the Russian Revolution. Sure. So the blood libel is the centuries-old accusation made against Jews, according to which they need the blood of Christians, usually Christian children, in order to carry out specific rituals, primarily the ritual uh, of um, you know, Passover. So they need the blood of Christian children to, um, uh, you know, as, as a fundamental ingredient for the unleavened bread, the matzah. Um, the first blood libel uh, actually takes place in, um, in England in the 12th century. And uh, there are instances of blood libel accusation throughout uh, the Middle Ages, early modern period in Christian Europe. Um, and it becomes rather widespread in Eastern Europe as well. What is so interesting is that historians have tended to focus primarily on um, or only have focused only on the blood libel in the context of uh, the early modern period and have kind of um, not focused enough on this, on, on the persistence of this accusation in modern times, which is one of the things that interests me. Um, first of all, if we think about the question of belief in this, um, in this accusation, um, we have to also consider the power of the irrational, the power of yes. irrational thinking. <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, this echoes in, you know, in, in today's uh, political life in, in America, but the power of rational thinking and the dark side of modern times, right, the anxiety that, um, that uh, modern times um, unleash in, uh, in people leads them to believe in, uh, in uh, you know, um, um, mythical accusations like the blood libel, which is also very much connected to folklore um, mm -hmm. in certain parts of Eastern Europe. In some cases, it was exploited by uh, political forces. Um, they did not necessarily believe in this accusation, but they exploited it for, for other reasons. But in the Russian context, what is interesting is that there is a cultural legitimacy of this accusation that uh, persists for a longer period of time. Think about Dostoevsky, who might have believed that, you know, certain sects of Jews did carry out this um, this crime. Uh, and the Tsar, Nicholas II, most likely believed that uh, that Jews did carry out uh, this this crime. So, and it, um, yeah, and it's it's you and it's it's called the libel because there is absolutely no evidence in any part of history that this ever happened. Uh, that this, that that there was a ritual murder of a Christian child for the purpose of celebrating Passover. Right. Right. Most. What's so interesting is that the Pope, for example, in um, in Christian Europe, uh, several times intervened. Uh, um, you know, with a very clear statement saying this has never happened. This goes against the beliefs of Jews. Right. One right. of one of the prohibitions is that Jews cannot um, consume uh, blood. Um, and so, um, you know, it really has to do with. Um, with, with, I think it has to do a lot with folklore, folk belief, mm -hmm. and, um, 
Um, but as you say, you know, there is no evidence whatsoever that this. And there is, there is a strong strain in Russian folklore of, of, you know, I'm going to take these children and cut them up and eat them, you know, Baba Yaga and all these, all these um, classic fairy tales. Um, but and as a food writer, I can just say, you look at matzah and there's no way there's blood in it. <laughs> no, <there is> no <laughs> so it's it beggars belief actually so so you have this idea and i think of pogroms it's clear as a sort of you know state state sponsored violence um so you put these two together and could you tell us a little bit about your methodology um you know how did you start how did this book start to sort of talk to you from from the uh, from the archives um well, I can tell you, um, actually, the idea to write this book um, came to me, um, first of all, uh, through an anecdote. Um, when I was in Vilnius um, about 10 years ago, Vilna, Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania, um, I was um, I became very close with a with a colleague who de, who teaches early modern Eastern European history. And she was teaching a course on the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. Um, in, um, of course, in early modern times, and um, and she was talking about the culture and the religion of the different um, uh, ethnic minorities living in the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, and it was, a, you know, when she was talking about uh, Passover, uh, it coincided with Passover and Easter at the time, and so she decided to bring to class matzah so that her students could taste it something that you cannot find in the supermarkets in Lithuania. And um, of the 40 students, only about five students tasted it. And I was very naive and I asked why. And she said to me, um, why are you asking why if you work on Europe? Uh, so that triggered my interest. Mm. Um, at the same time, I was reading the Soviet press from the 1930s. Um, especially in Yiddish, the Soviet Yiddish press, and I found um, um, reference to blood libel accusations happening in the Soviet Union in what was supposed to be an atheistic society that had uh, uprooted anti-Semitism, but there were blood libel accusations and there were investigative commissions that were uh, you know, pursuing the investigation of those who had made the accusation. So I was very much intrigued by this. Um, at the same time, you know, I thought this is something that we associate only with Tsarist Russia. Mm. What is it doing in the Soviet context? It, so this was what kind of got me interested. Um, in terms of the pogroms, I quote-unquote found the pogroms in the archives. Many years later, I, was, um, I had a fellowship um, that allowed me to do work, to carry out work in the YIVO archive, the archive um, in New York City, uh, YIVO Institute for Jewish Research, that holds one of the most extraordinary archives um, in terms of the study of uh, 20th century Jewish history, uh, the archives put together by historian Elias Cherikov, who was from Ukraine, um, and he systematically recorded the, um, the pogroms that took place during the Civil War from 1917 until 1921, mm -hmm. um, and he collected witness accounts, and I found the accounts of a woman uh, that really 
um, that really got me thinking about how different these programs were. Um, in many instances, uh, these programs, this kind of collective uh, anti-Jewish violence became genocidal. Um, mm. And um, and this woman, uh, you know, collected, her name is Rachel Feigenberg, she collected witness accounts and she wrote the the history of destruction of different small towns, of different shtetlach. And so this got me thinking, you know, what is the legacy of this violence for those Jews who remained in the territories that became the Soviet Union? In terms of methodology, I know I'm talking a lot, but in terms of methodology, I kind of connected the blood libel uh, with the pogrom because they are very much connected in history and in memory. Um, you know, in many instances, the pogroms that took place um, in the different waves during the 19th century and early 20th century and pre-revolutionary times were triggered by a blood libel accusation. Oh, the child has disappeared. It must have been the Jews and then the Jews are attacked. Um, and um, so, it, you know, it is very much connected, this kind of... Uh, uh, the rhetoric of violence with actual violence in uh, in Russian Jewish history. So I wanted to see how this played out um, in the Soviet context. And what you found, you know, your book kind of bucks the traditional idea that the Bolsheviks came in and they said, okay, you know, no more religion and no more anti-Semitism. Um, but it's more subtle than that, as I think your book really, really um, outlines in a very cogent and, and very compelling way. Um, take us through the years of World War I and then the revolution and, and perhaps onto the Civil War um, and how attitudes towards the Jews change on the hand of the Bolsheviks, but also how the Jews begin to look at the various options that are presented to them. Um, so I, what I really um, try to explain, especially in the first part of the book, is how this... Um, what I call the Soviet Jewish Alliance. It is built on this kind of very ambivalent foundation, shaky foundation and ambivalent foundation that changes over time. So first of all, um, you know, uh, uh, most Jews were strongly anti-Bolshevik. Um, actually, uh, right before, right after February 1917, there's a tiny percentage of Jews who are uh, supporting Lenin and um, and the Bolshevik uh, view of society and view of how the revolution should take place. Most Jews are anti-Bolshevik, of course, because the large majority of Jews in Tsarist Empire are rather traditional, and uh, the Bolsheviks are opposed to religion. They're anti-Bolshevik because, um, uh, according to you know the Bolsheviks, there should be no private property. So it's about nationalizing um, the uh, property, and most Jews are small peddlers, um, so they're opposed to it. And also, Lenin and Stalin, as of 1913, have denied very clearly that Jews are a nation. Right? Jews are a caste, as Lenin said. Jews have no national rights. So Jews who are um, uh, Bundist meaning uh, Jewish socialists or Zionists of different kinds are opposed to the Bolsheviks precisely for this reason. But in the midst of the civil war, when 
um, uh, you know, the civil war that begins right after the Bolsheviks uh, come to power in October of 1917 uh, and continues until 1921, until, you know, the, the Red Army reoccupies uh, the areas, is back in charge politically uh, uh, of the areas that were um, that come, uh, in, you know, um, in the context of the civil war. Um, Jews make most Jews uh, are faced with with the, with a very harsh dish, a very uh, hard decision to make, and they choose usually the lesser of two evils. They side with the Bolsheviks, with the Red Army, not so much because of ideological reasons, but mostly because the Red Army, compared to the white uh, Ukrainian nationalists and the different um, uh, peasant uh, bands that participate in the civil war, the Bolsheviks or the Red Army uh, is the army that carries out uh, less pogroms, uh, less instances of anti-Jewish violence are carried out by the Red Army. Um, more, most importantly, uh, the soldiers in the Red Army are punished by uh, Soviet authorities whenever uh, this um, uh, you know, whenever there are instances of, of pogroms, whereas Ukrainian nationalist Polish troops um, involved in this very chaotic and violent war do not punish their soldiers. So it is it is a choice of, you know, um, so many young Jews join the Red Army. Again, not so much for ideological reasons, but uh, because because the Red Army will allow them to carry out acts of revenge, actually, against those who killed their, um, their family members. So many Jews joined the Cheka uh, in order to carry out, you know, um, uh, acts of revenge. Uh, by the same token, the Soviets, Soviet um, authorities, and especially early on, are looking for allies, and they know that uh, Jews are um, a likely choice uh, for the secret police and for the, you know, the building of the new state administration, not only because they're higher literacy rate, but also because they, um, they are not, they are politically uh, loyal, potentially politically loyal, because most Jews did not support the whites or did not support the Ukrainian nationalists after 1919. Um, so they are a likely choice in terms of, you know, uh, building up this alliance. Um, there are many limits to this alliance also. But. So can I just ask you, Elisa, um, the Ukrainian nationalists um, and the white army, are they inherently anti-Semitic or are their forces sort of not kept as tightly controlled as the Reds? Uh, and so they let their soldiers kind of go for this widespread violence. Yeah, this is an excellent point. And I, I think I tried to bring it out in um, in the book. The, they're not as tightly controlled uh, as they should be, uh, the, the, the soldiers um, of the Ukrainian forces and of the white forces. So that the the whites in particular see the pogrom um, as a weapon to defeat Bolshevism, to keep, you know, what is a pogrom? The pogrom is, yes, there is killing, but it's primarily looting. 
Um, mm. And looting is a driving force for these soldiers, for the peasant bands, who, by the way, we have to remember the context. I mean, these are not people who are, as you you know, as you mentioned, inherently anti-Semitic necessarily, but these are people who have suffered and who are suffering ex the extraordinary, um, um, you know, circumstances, um, especially in the countryside, famine, um, uh, and, you know, the dire uh, circumstances since World War One. And so the, the idea, the possibility of looting is driving them. And in the midst of looting, the killing escalates. And it varies, of course, uh, from place to place. But, um, but the pogrom is seen as, um, as a weapon to, uh, to defeat Bolsheviks. And we do have evidence, for example, of the fact that uh, Simeon Petlyura, who was the leader of the Ukrainian forces, did condemn uh, pogroms, but he condemned it very often he condemned this kind of violence ex post facto, and mm. he condemned it uh, in some places, he condemned it, but not uh, everywhere. Because again, um, the pogrom seems useful to bring together these, um, these soldiers, these forces. I see. And you also go into a lot of um, detail in your in your book about sort of the, t uh, the rapes that take place, so even quite young young women and girls uh was that was that a motivating factor for the whites as well or um just an offshoot of the pogrom i suppose i think it, I, I think it's a combination of both and it's an upshoot of the pogroms uh rape uh has been part of the pogroms since you know uh you know the pogroms uh, think about kishinev in 1903 um um, in this case, um, during the Civil War, the, the rape really escalates uh, and becomes uh, widespread and is often used as, um, as a weapon of war and as a weapon of ethnic cleansing. Very often, Jewish women, young Jewish women, are being raped in front of uh, other members of their of families, parents. Uh, uh, but it is a way to punish Jews for their um, their propensity for communism, right? They're being punished for um, for supporting the Reds, for supporting communism, um, so that the males of the family of the community are being punished through uh, through the rape of women. Um, <clears throat> And um, what is so, uh, one of the reasons why I, I became so interested in this war was, was precisely mass rape. Perhaps as many as one third of Jewish women, in particular in Ukraine, where, um, where the civil war uh, reaches, it, you know, uh, well, where the... the, the the epicenter of anti-Jewish violence uh, takes place. One third of Jewish women uh, were raped, most likely, which has long-term consequences, of course, for uh, for the, the the Jewish community um, in uh, in the interwar period. And how how so? You you go into detail later in the latter part of the book about. Um, sort of the journey of of Jewish women, um, but what is the what is the immediate effect in the interwar period? The immediate effect um, that we see, uh, you know, as early as 1920, you know, hundreds of thousands of Jewish refugees 
Um, and so many people, families, decide to leave their, you know, the city of death, uh, the shtetl of death because of the civil war. So the demographic revolution that takes place um, for the, you know, for Jews after the revolution is not so much triggered only by the great opportunities that the Soviets offered Jews in, you know, Moscow and um, and the other uh, metropolises. But it's really, flee- it's about fleeing um, the violence, the trauma. Mm-hmm. And so many Jewish women uh, and their families flee this, the centers of, uh, of this violence. Um, fleeing also means preventing further rape, right? So I'm going to leave now so that this doesn't happen uh, again. For Jewish women, there is also de- uh, a decline, significant decline in the natality rate. Uh, and actually, I found many uh, accounts by Soviet demographers who are very much concerned about the fact that Jewish women are having less um, babies because, you know, and, and one of the causes is, of course, uh, uh, rape. Um uh, venereal disease, um, women who, uh, some Jewish women will commit suicide as a result of, uh, of rape. But also we have to think about, you know, how trauma is in, internalized. It's not always um, by, you know, by remembering the trauma, but it's also by trying to forget the trauma. So oblivion, mm-hmm. oblivion through intermarriage, through um very successful horizontal socialization that takes place uh, as Jews leave these centers of violence. Right, and, and they go to, um, I wouldn't say that the Bolsheviks welcome them with open arms, but in the beginning, particularly it struck me in your book in the 1920s, um, they're very keen to have the Jews come and, and work in, in the nascent government. Um, but you have a wonderful phrase where you say, um, that the Bolshevik attempts to um, counteract anti-Semitism fluctuates between public condemnation and utter disregard, which I, I thought was a great phrase. But how do the Jews fit into the Bolsheviks' overall um, attempts to kind of re- completely remake society? Um, and how do they galvanize the Jews in that effort? So um, I would say that uh, fighting against anti-Semitism um, is seemingly a priority for the Bolsheviks in the beginning, right? When Lenin in March 1919, he condemns the pogroms, uh, anti-Semitism is outlawed. Um, it's not so much that, um, that, that they're trying, well, it is, it is a combination of trying to appeal to that Soviet Jewish alliance, but it's most importantly, um, an attempt to distance themselves from the um, uh, the political enemy number one, which uh, which was Tsarist Russia, right? So if 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 late impure Russia was so uh, prone to anti-Semitism, uh, encouraging pogroms, uh, encouraging um, ritual murder accusations, think about the Bailey's affair. 1911, 1913, um, in 
um, the Soviet Russia, so the Soviet Union is clear, is saying very clearly, we have nothing to do with this. We reject this. But of course, you know, anti-Semitism is something that the Soviets remain committed to only to some, only as far as this is in the interests of the state. And there is the ambivalence. Uh, can be seen very early on. I think in the trials, what I what I found fascinating in the trials, the Soviet trials against those who participated in the pogrom, um, whereby um, these people who participated in anti-Jewish violence are not being accused of anti-Semitism in any way. They're being accused of carrying out acts of counter-revolution. So. Mm. They are against the revolution, but they're not necessarily anti-Semitic, meaning that already here you see how um, the, the Bolsheviks will be going back and forth between playing the card of anti-Semitism, but then retracting it when it is no longer um, in the interest of the state. I see. And, to, and at the same time that this is going on, uh, there is the vigorous and very sort of robust attempts um, to sort of really rid the country of any religious affiliation and, and uh, the, the anti-religious campaign, the, the atheists, the sort of push to atheists. How does the fight against anti-Semitism fit it, get baked into this during the 1920s and 30s? Um, so the fight against uh, um, Judaism is in no way... Um, does it grow out of um, anti-Semitism? You know, the, the previous scholarship has seen a connection between the anti-religious campaign on the Jewish street and uh, Soviet anti-Semitism. But in fact, as we know, if there was one religion that was singled out by the Soviets, this was a Russian Orthodoxy, again, because of this a close alliance between the Tsar and the church. Um, what is so interesting about the anti-religious campaigns that are carried out, um, um, you know, throughout the Soviet Union in terms of anti-Judaism, what I found fascinating was that for the very first time in, um, in Jewish history, uh, the, some of the rituals, some of Jewish rituals um, were put on, um, on, were put on trial, right? Uh, kosher slaughtering, uh, circumcision in particular, or being demonized um, in these anti-religious campaigns. And what happens is that by demonizing these anti, you know, these Jewish rituals, um, inadvertently, the Soviets remind the reader of other Jewish rituals, alleged Jewish rituals like the blood libel. Uh, demonizing Judaism um, inadvertently encourages anti-Semitism because, of course, um, you know, if you think about this extraordinary, for historians, um, publication, The Atheist at the Workplace, which, uh, you know, which was one of the most widespread publications in the Soviet Union. 200, it reached 200,000 copies. 
Um, and it was a publication that was intended as a major uh, propaganda tool to defeat religion in all its, uh, um, its manifestations. Um, but you can imagine that someone who already had perhaps uh, had contact with some kind of anti-Jewish stereotypes and then was given this publication and, and, and saw these, uh, you know, demonizing depictions of Judaism could be uh, reminded of anti-Semitic uh, prejudice and, and could perhaps misunderstand and, um, and reinforce and be reinforced in these beliefs by, uh, by the state itself. Again, it's not the state's, the Soviet state's intention, uh, but it is an inadvertent uh, um, consequence of uh, of this uh, propaganda. So at the same time, the Jews are taking the opportunity to process their trauma, their memory of, of the programs of the difficulties of the czarist era. And I wonder if you could walk us through what forms this take and, and how effective are these attempts? How tenacious um, are these attempts to create a sort of memorial uh, texts and um just a, a living memory for for those who've come behind. I was um, I was very much intrigued by um, by the memory of the pogroms um, in the interwar period and how um, the, the pogrom becomes uh, for Jews a Jewish lieu de mémoire, a Jewish kind of site of memory that is preserved through informal meetings, for example, meetings that take place um, even during the 1930s. I found reference to these meetings that take place um, in the synagogues or around the synagogues or at the site of the massacres. You have um, memorials that are built at the site of these massacres. Uh, They're built usually right after the Civil War ends, uh, very often with the support of um, those uh, Jews, probably relatives or members of the same community who have managed to reach the United States and send uh, uh, funds to build these memorials. Think about the the memorial um, in Praskurov, uh, or Praskuriv, today Khmelnytsky in Ukraine, which was the site of one of the worst um, uh, instances of anti-Jewish violence. Um, more than 1,500 Jews were killed just in a few hours. Um, and this memorial uh, is still standing today. And there are other memorials. So there is this, this history isn't quite studied enough. Um, but, but these meetings are informal, meaning that the state does not intervene. Again, why? And here we, we really kind of touch, uh, touch upon this, the, the ambivalent relationship between, um, between, you know, the ambivalence of the Soviet-Jewish alliance. Uh, for the Soviets, the pogrom has to be a universal lieu de mémoire, a universal site of, uh, of memory, whereby um, all uh, um, people who supported the revolution were targeted for violence by the counter-revolution. Jews did not suffer more than others. Um, in terms of uh, this memory that becomes more and more universal, so the state is really pushing for a universal memory uh, by the end of the 1930s, 
um, you see it also in um, in in some Jewish publications, in some uh, uh, works of literature, mostly in Yiddish, that are produced in the 1930s, where this, you know, the, the memory of this violence, once it becomes official, it has to be a universal memory. It has to be, you know, rewritten uh, through the lenses of revolution versus counter, oh, counter-revolution versus revolution. Um, mm-hmm. One of the points that I want to make is that, um, you know, this this memory, um, uh, these programs are largely forgotten, of course, because they are, um, uh, you know, um, obfuscated by uh, the memory of the Holocaust. It took place some 20 years later in the same territories, right? The epicenter of mm. the violence was Ukraine. Um, and those... Jews who retained this memory, and I talk about them in the 1930s, right, uh, who retained this memory of violence and who stayed in those territories and decided not to move to the metropolises are those who were killed so successfully uh, once, uh, you know, uh, the German army attacks the Soviet Union in June 1941. So even for that reason, that memory is um, is lost, right? And and any attempts, uh, I think your book makes clear to to sort of combat anti-Semitism fall by the wayside, particularly in Ukraine um, as the Nazis occupy. And it seems that it doesn't take them much effort to revitalize those ideas of blood libel and um, violence against Jews being warranted with the local population, which does linger through the war and then indeed after the wars. Is that right? Uh, yes, I think that the Soviets were actually rather successful in taming popular anti-Semitism. Um, you see this in um, in the archives that I've used, in the archival material I've found uh, <clears throat> for the 20s and 30s um, in Ukraine. You see how successful the Soviet state was in taming um, uh, popular anti-Semitism um, there is a degree of frustration on the part of um, of people, not everyone, but of some, about the fact that pogroms are no longer allowed in the Soviet Union. Right, the Soviet Union does not allow this kind of spontaneous um, anti-Jewish violence as as a way of punishing Jews for some crimes allegedly committed. But once you have um, the war of extermination that is launched by the Germans, once you have this systematic exterminatory rhetoric and practices that is being carried out uh, by the Germans as of 1941 and throughout uh, the war, um, the theme of, um, of um, you know, this alliance between Jews and the Soviets and and the possibility of punishing Jews for uh, these alleged crimes reemerges very, uh, very much so. The, the Germans themselves actually employ to some degree in their propaganda uh, the ritual murder, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, there, you know, um, there is an attempt to distribute uh pamphlets that uh, that encourage uh, the locals to uh, you know engage in anti-jewish violence because Jews are killing 
uh, non-Jews for ritual purposes. And of course, there, there is this propaganda that encourages uh, the idea of uh, Judeo-Bolshevism. Um, but I do want to emphasize the fact that uh, the Soviets are rather successful in the interwar period um, in taming uh, popular anti-Semitism. Uh, but but after the war, it seems um, there's there's kind of an acute and somewhat disturbing rise of anti-Semitism, and I think with Stalin kind of at the center of that, isn't it? Um, yes, and I mean the legacy of this, of course, is the war of extermination. As I said, you know people. Um, uh, are used get, have gotten used to treating Jews and imbuing Jews through the lenses of this um, exterminatory practice and rhetoric. Um, the rise in anti-Semitism, of course, has to do with um, you know with you know there are different reasons. Uh, the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948, the emergence of the Cold War. And, uh, you know, the connection between the West and the political enemies and uh, the fact that many Jews have relatives in the West does play out. Um, But it's also, to go back to the war, it it also is connected to the fact that Jews seem to be carving out for themselves this this particular suffering uh, that they experience because of uh, of the Holocaust. And in the Soviet context, this particular suffering is not allowed. And and I connect Mm -hmm. this, you know, there is a legacy in terms of the culture of memory. I mean, it is connected to the civil war. You know, this this particular suffering, particular uh, memory of suffering is not allowed. and the other reason for the rise, of course, in anti-Semitism is the return, the so-called return of the Jews, which has been studied, meaning uh, uh, those Jews who survived the Holocaust and return um, to their um, to the cities and, and their homes. Um, and it has been studied in the context of Poland and other areas of Eastern Europe, but not really in those areas that come under, um, you know, control of the Soviets, the so-called new lands, right? The, uh, mm-hmm. And the, the newly occupied territories. But there's a lot of tension, right, that emerges when uh, when uh, those who survive, those Jews who survived the Holocaust, return and 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 demand to have to to have their house given back. Uh, and I do chronicle some instances um, whereby the state does the, says, "Why do you need that house? You know, just you know, move into this other building. What's the big deal?" Uh, but it, but nevertheless, there are um, there are these tensions that emerge between neighbors uh, right. because of, of the legacy of World War II. And one um, um, related uh, trend that I found really fascinating. Uh, in your book was the shift of focus um, of from the Jewish man as as the sort of e- evil incarnate to the Jewish woman as kind of predatory, and it this seems to become more prevalent as you we previously spoke about the women move to the urban centers they become more liberated empowered. Um, I wonder if you could speak about that that a little bit because the blood libel um, story seems to change and morph with this trend um and is is the notion of a woman as the agent for this ritual murder more horrifying than a man um and and how how did you how did your research sort of 
reveal stuff about that. So I'm very interested in, in this question of permutation and as a social historian, right, trying to understand how this accusation that goes back to the 12th century, how it changes over time. Um, one of the changes that we see in the Soviet context, but we also see it elsewhere, is that it is no longer necessarily um, uh, Christian children who are being targeted for the alleged murder, but it's young women, right? So it's no longer about the reenactment of the killing of Christ, which is at, you know, one of the uh, foundations of the uh, blood libel uh, narrative, but it is, it is actually the young woman who represents the nation that is being kind of attacked um, uh, by uh, the Jewish enemy. Um, in the Soviet context only, which is fascinating, we have um, women and not Jewish men. So it's Jewish women and not Jewish men who are accused of carrying out the, um, the ritual murder, uh, which doesn't appear in any other context. So this got me thinking, um, why is that the case? And of course, there always is when we talk about racism, when we talk about anti-Semitism, we always have to kind of disentangle myth from reality. Um, what I found fascinating is that um, Jewish women are accused of being perpetrators, right, a, uh, of perpetrating ritual murder as a way to punish them for their, quote unquote, uppity ways, right, for, for <laughs> their, because they, they are empowered. But it is also true that Jewish women compared to non-Jewish women are more successful in the beginning. Um, Right. So if if you, you know, uh, you, you look around and you see which Jewish woman, which woman who is in, who is who has a position uh, of, you know, uh, in, in trust and power and right. Uh, socioeconomically or politically, it is more likely to be a Jewish woman because of the higher literacy rates. And there are other reasons than a Ukrainian woman or a Belarusian woman. And so, um, so this, you know, the empowerment of Jewish women does play out in, um, in this accusation. You know, the question you ask, is it more horrifying that, uh, uh, that it's, you know, that this uh, alleged uh, crime is being carried out by a woman? Yes, I would say, <laughs> no, it shouldn't be, but, but it is. It is somehow, isn't it? Yeah. I'm not. I'm not sure exactly why. I'm not sure I can unpack it, but it does seem more horrific. Well, because um, we we are uh, we are all trained uh, culturally to think about crimes in a very gendered way. Crimes are mm -hmm. carried out by men, right, uh, and not by women. There is this kind, you know, uh, women is the association is uh, you know motherly. Um, Mother, the, the image, the motherly image. Uh, nurturing, nurturing, not, not gendered. Yeah. Interesting. One of the um, things that really shocked me when I went to um, live in Russia and married my husband, who's Russian, and started to sort of talk to people um, was the prevalence of this conspiracy that you note in your book about um, the assassination of the imperial family of Nicholas II and his uh, wife and children was was done as a Jewish ritual 
uh, murder. And I, I wonder what the origins of that are. Um, it seems super prevalent in today's society. You talk to well-educated Russians um, who are convinced that this is the case. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Um, well, what is so fascinating, actually, is that this myth, um, this this mythical accusation, this conspiracy uh, theory um, became very widespread, or rather widespread in the West as well. Um, the, this journalist writer by the name of Robert Wilton, uh, who wrote several books in 1918 and in 1920 in Great Britain that were published in Great Britain, he was convinced, and he wrote this in his books, that um, when, you know, when the Bolsheviks ordered the, the murder of, of Nicholas II and his family, uh, it was actually a ritual murder that, uh, you know, Jews were uh, carrying out a kind of a more secular version. This also has to do with the, you know, this, the, the permutation of the accusation, a more secular version uh, um, of the blood libel. Um, it, what I have seen in the sources that I use is that it appears in the 1920s and in the 1930s. Um, the OGPU, the, the secret police that will become uh, the NKVD, uh, does uh, record such accusations and such convic convictions um, being rather widespread. Um, when the Germans occupy uh, the, so the part of the Soviet Union during Operation Barbarossa during World War II, um, they also kind of... Uh, they encounter this, this belief and they encourage it, of course. Um, it is about, you know, uh, alleged Jewish political power that is being um, um, kind of carried out through uh, Jews embracing Bolshevism, which, by the way, goes back to the protocols of the elders of Zion, right, which is one of the most fascinating, which we haven't really talked about, but I do uh, mention it in the book. Um, this the most uh, fascinating um, uh, document in the history of uh, anti-Semitism, whereby Jews are accused of um, um, this kind of world conspiracy uh, taking over um, and coordinating any event in history uh, in order to take over the world. But um, this accusation reemerged um, quite you know, potently in, um, in the latter years of Gorbachev, right? Uh, this um, uh, right-wing group uh, and the publication Pamiet's Memory um, published uh, several articles about, uh, you know, the, the, the assassination of the Tsar's family, of Nicholas II, as ritual murder. Um, the... Um, the church, very recently, the Russian uh, Orthodox Church um, launched an official investigation to find out once and for all uh, whether this has indeed been, um, you know, a, a, a Jewish act of ritual murder. 
Um, I'm not sure what the results of this investigation. It's still going on. It's still, (laughs) it's still. Was launched two, you know, initiated two years ago. Not sure. It's, it's still dragging on. And I think it's, it's, um, it's not, it's not productive in any way, (laughs) but, but that speaks to the fact that um, none of these conspiracy theories, none of these um, libels, or specters is really vanquished. Although you make the point at the end of the book that you know the four hundred thousand Jews who live uh, in the former Soviet Union are not really in danger of, of these kind of this kind of violence, um, but that other ethnic minorities and sexual minorities are. Um, I wonder if you could speak about that in, in conclusion, because um, that's a that's an interesting way to end your book. I think. Um, I, I do believe that, um, in a way, um, in light of the growing violence against ethnic minorities, especially in Russia today, um, I do believe that um, the ethnic minorities from the former Soviet republics, from Africa, um, members of the LGBTQ community have become the have become Jews quote-unquote, meaning that they are more likely to be the target of collective violence um, rather than, uh, than, than the Jews um, who are still living in, um, in the territories of the former Soviet Union. And even in the context of the war that Putin has launched against Ukraine, uh, illegally taking over Crimea, among other things. Um, what is so interesting is that Putin did play the card, uh, the Jewish card. Um, he did talk about anti-Semitism, and he uh, he talked about the fact that in Russia there is no anti-Semitism, whereas in Ukraine there is anti-Semitism because the leaders of Ukraine, I mean, this was uh, two years ago, uh, he said this, the leaders of Ukraine, are the same uh, the, the 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 children of um, of those Ukrainian nationalists who carried out uh, acts of um, violence, massacres, anti-Jewish massacres during the war? And he said, uh, "Lo and behold, there will be pogroms in in Ukraine. You should support us, Russia, because Ukraine is anti-Semitic. But in fact, there were there there hasn't been one pogrom in." Um, uh, one instance of collective violence against Jews in uh, in Ukraine, and and Ukraine has a Jewish president. Yeah, exactly, a Jewish. President. <laughs> so, and many, so it's a happy many ending. <laughs> many political leaders, yeah, Zelensky is Jewish, but many other yeah. political leaders who are uh, indeed um, Jewish. Yes. Well, it'll be fascinating to 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 watch what happens next there because um, that story isn't isn't over by any means. Um, tell us what's what's next for you. What are you working on currently? I'm currently working on the biography of um, a Jewish woman who was, I would say, after Rosa Luxemburg, probably um, the most um, prolific AC essayist and writer um, on the um, um, among radical uh, Jewish women. Uh, her name is Esther Frumkin and she was a member. Oh, yes. Yes. You know, she was a member of, of the, um, the Bund. And what is so interesting is that she is, of course, very active uh, as a radical uh, in 
Tsarist Russia in the latter period of, um, you know, of the 1900s, um, of the 1910s, I'm sorry, but then she remains very active uh, and becomes a communist during the interwar period. So I'm trying to follow her life and, and trying to engage with the question of Jews and radicalism. And I'm very much interested in gender. So I want to see, you know, how gender fits in also in this, um, in, uh, you know, in the extent to which Jews embrace um, embraced socialism and then communism in different contexts. Well, that's a, that sounds fascinating, Elisa. Can we get you back on the podcast to discuss that book? With pleasure, of course. With okay. <laughs> that's about all that we have time for today. But before um, uh, we go, I do want to um, give readers the opportunity to know where they can find more about you and your work online uh, and connect with you. I believe, I believe you're on Twitter. Um, where else can we find you? I am on Twitter and I am on Facebook, um, academia.edu. Um, and I would say that's it. Okay. Well, uh, this has been a fascinating discussion about um, Elisa Bemperod's award-winning book, Legacy of Blood, Jews, Pogroms, and Ritual Murder in the Lands of the Soviets um, from Oxford University Press. Elisa, thank you so much for a wonderful discussion. Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, I'm your host, Jennifer Yeremeyeva. Thanks for listening.